Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, if you would, please turn to 1 Peter. Morning, it is good to see you. 1 Peter chapter 1, as we work our way through this passage of Scripture, I've titled this message, Validation Through Suffering. Validation Through Suffering. We have worked our way through verses uh, 3 through 5 after four weeks, so now I believe that we're going to get through the next three verses, four verses in one week. So I'm excited about that. Let me ask you a question. What do you rejoice in? Where do you find your happiness? Is it in your career? Is it in your job, your family, your friends, your spouse, your grandchildren, retirement, entertainment, or other types of pleasure? Where do you find your joy and your happiness in? If you were like me, you would probably say, yes, I find joy in many of those things, and I think we do. There are many things I find joy in my grandchildren, in my spouse, and in my children, in my career job. I find joy and happiness in there. But let me ask you this, what do you do when these things fail to bring you joy and happiness? What if it's your family all of a sudden that disrupts your happiness, or your job, your career, your retirement? What do you do then when those things fail to bring you the joy and happiness you seek? Where do you look to then? Because all of these things can bring us joy. But if you and I are honest this morning, they also are many times the very source of our depression and our unhappiness and our discouragement and disillusionment. Scripture commands us not to put our faith in these things that are earthly, the things here on earth, even many of the relationships that you and I hold dear and say, this is my source of joy. Now, it's not telling us that those things are wrong, bad, or evil, but that we should never put our faith in things that are temporary or fleeting. Rather, the scripture tells us that we're to put our joy into things that will last forever. You know what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, right? And where uh, thieves break in and steal, but to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy or decay, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there where is your heart, will, or there your heart will be also. Where Or what is the source of your joy and happiness? The next question I would ask you is, why do you find it difficult? Even if it's among those things, why do you find it so difficult to be joyful in suffering, in troubles, and in pain? Why do you struggle with that? When life is not as good in those very source of those things, why do you struggle to find joy? And I, and I say that assuming that when things go bad, you are joyless, that things are difficult, that you suffer from depression or despair, correct? We, many of us, find those things. You today may be in that very same position. Scripture, again, would point to the object 
of our joy and happiness. Unfortunately, too many Christians are guilty of looking towards the wrong things to bring them joy and happiness. So I would ask, what is the object of your joy? Is it a person? Is it a relationship? Is it a thing? Is it an idea? Pastor Milton Vincent, in his book, The Gospel Primer, which I use quite a bit here, and I would encourage you to get a copy of that. If you would like one, I would love to give you one informs us that we are created, that we might hold God as the supreme object of our admiration. That's why we were created for that. We would look to him and we would see that he is the object or the admiration that we should be given to, but yet we know that we did not. Our first parents failed in that. Bringing us and opening us up the world to the curse of sin and death. In today's passage, Peter is going to give us a command. A very difficult command. One, though, that is important for you and I as Christians to master. If you and I neglect this command, life will be unbearable for those that are called to live as exiles in a world that is hostile to our faith. To to not master this command could even, listen to this, extinguish our witness to our family, friends, co-workers, and neighbors, those whom we find joy. It could extinguish that witness. So 1 Peter chapter 1, we're in verses 6. We're going to read 6 through 9. Let's read that together. If you have your Bibles open to that or bring your eyes to the monitor and you can join with us there. Peter writes this, In this you rejoice, though for now a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And Father, that's our desire this morning, is to obtain the outcome of our faith, salvation. For that's what we've been called to. But Lord, we've been exiled here in a world that is hostile to our faith. So open up our minds and hearts to your word. Lord, that we may rejoice in this. Father, I don't know where everyone is coming from. I don't know how everyone is today. There may be some here that are bubbling with joy. They see you as the the object of their admiration. Father, maybe life is good. Maybe there's some here that are struggling with some discouragement or maybe uh, desperation, maybe even with some things that are going on in their life. Or maybe there's some here, Father, that are just here that do not know you at all. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would have free reign. And Father, may we respond to his work. We praise the name of Christ. Amen. In this passage, we see that Peter agrees with James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The message of 1 Peter is simply this, how to handle suffering as a Christian. Now, we've been going through this, what, through five, six weeks, and all of us know that the way that we as Christians handle suffering in this life is through what? Hope. Okay? Through hope. That's what he's saying is that the answer is hope. God gives us hope in suffering. Now, prayer is very important in that, but as we see, the answer is going to be our hope. 
We are learning that suffering offers believers a chance to show others the generous love of Jesus. And I probably think that most of us, when we are suffering, when life is difficult, when we're on our last legs, probably the last thing that we're thinking about, oh, is I'm supposed to show the generous love of God as I go through this. We're usually thinking, why me? What have I done wrong? How is God punishing me? And we've talked about that, how many of us have the wrong view of God's attitude towards us. Those that are called, those that are chosen, those that have been born again, God has a different love and look for us. Now, you may recall from preaching, you know, from the years I've been here, that we've shared the formula for God's revelation. When you look in Scripture, there's a formula of what God is doing here. It's called the precept, the principle, and the person. The precept here is the command. He gives us a command. You must do this. So precepts are the thou shalt's and the thou shalt nots of the Bible, if we're talking about the King James, okay? Okay, the thou shalt's and the thou shalt nots. The principle is the why. You know, we never give a command. What is kids going to go? Going to ask, why do I have to do this? And many times, are you satisfied with the answer because I told you so? Not most of us, not most of us. So, but God gives us the principle why. Here's why you must do this. And here's what's important. And again, I tell the parents, very important. This is so, uh, we got to get this, is that the reason he gives us the command, the reason he gives us the why, is because it points to who the character of who God is. See, Scripture is not just, you know, when we use it, say it's a guidebook, it's a rule book, it's a way how we're to do life. That's not necessarily true. It, it may have some of those things, and it may be applied to those things, but really it's the revelation of who God is. He's trying to tell us, this is the type of person I am. Just like as you as a parent, when you tell your children, do not do this, and you don't tell them why, you're pointing to some type of person you are. And so that's very important. I think you understand this. So the precept, and I just want to give you a summary and then we'll break it down. The precept this morning, the command, is rejoice in trials. The priest, or the principle, the reason why, is that suffering or testing strengthens your faith. And what it reveals about the person of God is that God strengthens and rewards the faithful. He is a good God. So I want to give you three ways in which we look at the scripture, how suffering validates our salvation. Suffering actually validates our suffering. The first one, very simply, is in verse 6. Peter commands us to rejoice in troubles. That's the command. Let's look at it. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In this you rejoice. I love that phrase. In what does Peter, excuse me, command believers to rejoice in? What is it that we're to rejoice? Well, from our previous messages, for those of you who are here, we see that we're called to rejoice in God's mercy. For we were called according to God's mercy in choosing and calling us to himself and guarding us for an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's ready to be revealed in the last days. So you and I are called to rejoice in the mercy of God for the salvation, the inheritance that he gives his children. Even in the midst of trials and suffering, he says, remember this. Put this as the object of your faith. You and I have something as Christians to look forward to. Even though life is difficult in the here and now, we know that all that we suffer is only temporary. 
God has something better for his children. One day, you and I will be delivered from the presence of sin. Remember, delivered from the power of sin, yes. Delivered from the penalty of sin, yes, in the here and now. But one day, you and I will be delivered from the presence of sin. We will finally be united with God fully, and he will be with us. And our salvation will be fully completed. This is why scripture commands us to rejoice. He says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and constant in prayer. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Finally, Paul says, brothers, rejoice at all things. Uh, Paul says in Philippians, even though I'm poured out as a drink offering, even though my life is near the end, he says, be glad and rejoice. And he says, likewise, I want you to rejoice with me. Philippians has the great verse, rejoice in the Lord always and again, I say rejoice. And again, Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica, rejoice always. We are commanded to rejoice. One of the marks, and get this very important, one of the marks of a genuine Christian is a life marked full of joy. Now there is a difference between joy and happiness. You and I understand that. Happiness is man's boast in self. We're happy in what life gives us. It's a boast in what we accomplish, in the objects that make us happy. However, joy is actually man's boast in Christ and in the cross. It doesn't look for a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a relationship or for a job or for something else for joy and fulfillment. It looks to what has already been accomplished for you and I. It looks outside of ourselves. Joy is the opposite of anxiety, worry, and depression. That is why Peter tells us that we are to rejoice even if we've been grieved by various trials. Now there's two little truths that if you you read very quickly without thinking, there's two little truths there that you're going to miss if you don't look quickly in this short sentence. The trials it says here, and here's the truth, the trials that you and I must suffer through are for a little while. In other words, they're relative to really what time truly is. In other words, they're temporary. They're not persistent. And they're not forever. They're also necessary. All troubles, temptations, testing, pains, and suffering serve a higher purpose. Now, this is to be of great encouragement to me, as it should be to you. God is revealing that you and I are able to rejoice, to have hope during suffering, As long as, as long as we keep his promises in focus. Now again, remembering the words of Paul to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5 that we looked at several weeks ago. Paul wrote this, bring it to mind. For we know that if that tent that is our earthly home, talking about our bodies, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, one that is imperishable, undefiled. And unfading. It's eternal in the heavens. For he writes, For in this tent we now groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. But not only is suffering short in the view of eternity, but it also serves the purposes of God. Pastor Rick Warren down in Saddleback is correct when he says that God does not, get this, God does not waste a hurt. God does not waste a hurt. Everything that you've faced in your life, the troubles, the temptations, the testings, they all have a purpose. Your suffering 
is not in vain. Some of you really need to hear this. Because some of you have had, your life has been marked by immense suffering. Maybe even most of your life. You face each morning with dread. Finding no joy in either the common graces of God. Of just living and living in the sunshine. Living in the, in the rain. Or living through the common graces of God giving us breath. Or his special grace of love and mercy. Of saving faith. Your heart is heavy. Your countenance is sad. And your spirit is broken. You and I know people that look like that. Maybe you're one today. But maybe you're just good at holding. I've said before, and you've heard before, is, is church service is really a great masquerade ball. Each and every one of you came into here holding your favorite mask. And you put it over your face. And when someone comes and says, how are you doing? I'm doing great. But if we were to take your hand and remove that mask, we may see something much, much different. We haven't learned to be transparent, to be authentic, even in the house of God when we're called to be transparent and authentic. So you and I have to get past the masquerade mask that you and I wear and get into the heart because I believe there's some of you this morning who I've just described as being very discouraged and struggling in your Christian life. Like David, you cry out from Psalms 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Remember this is David, the man after God's own heart. He cries out, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. Without raising your hand, have you ever cried out something similar? Father, I just need rest. I just need to forget. I just can't deal anymore. Some of the trials that you and I might face are things like temptation. Temptations are designed by Satan to destroy your character and to draw you away from God. We think of Adam and Eve and even Jesus. They were tempted. They were, Satan was trying to destroy their character and to draw them away from God. We see testing. Testing is designed by God to strengthen our character and to draw us closer to him. We see testing in the Bible when we see Abraham and Isaac. Take your son Abraham and go and sacrifice him. Or Job, we looked at that I think last week or the week before. Testing of Job or even of Peter. As Satan comes and he's wanting to be uh, shifted by wheat, we see that. Many times the very same circumstance that is, a, that is a temptation is also a testing by God. Troubles are usually but not always the consequences of our own sinful choices. We see that in David and Bathsheba. And many times you and I are troubled because we're facing the consequences. And you say, wait a second, doesn't God forgive me of my sin? Once I'm a Christian, doesn't he? We confess our sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive us. And yes, that is true. But let me tell you, he doesn't always absolve us of the consequences of our actions. Many of you are suffering through that. 
The financial issues that you have are just the consequences of maybe not having right to say, making right decisions. Uh, a divorce, maybe a, a problem with your child or, or with your parents. All these things are consequences of our own troubles, of our own sin. But then there's trespasses. And many of the times these are ones that just break our hearts and these are usually hurts caused by the sins of others. Someone has trespassed against us. They, they've, 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 they've shamed me. They've, they've hurt me. They, they're bitter towards me. And, and now I'm carrying a burden that I don't understand. Hence why Jesus says, forgive those who trespass against you. And so all these things come many times and they're swirling around you and many times make life so joyless. You wonder, is there any spite, respite? Father, take us now, Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord. Now, many of these, as I've said before, are interwoven together, and they have a domino effect on our lives. Many times, one circumstance can entail one or more of these types of trials. But as we see, God's purpose in these things, in our suffering, plays a big part in our salvation and in our sanctification, making us more like Christ. The Christian life will be marked by suffering. Let no one tell you any different. Let you not listen to those who would say that if you become a Christ, all your problems will be solved. We make Christ a great therapist or a great life coach, but he's not there. He's not there to help you lose weight. He's not there just to help you out of your addictions. He's not there just to make all your problems go away. The Christian life is marked by suffering, talking to one uh, one of my relatives, and they're struggling with life, and they said, but we've done all this. Why are we still struggling? And, but that's the mark of a Christian. Pick up your cross and follow me. He tells us to count the cost. Christians must realize that we are exiled in a world that is hostile to our faith. The Christian life is marked by suffering, but also with healing. We are promised healing, but this is something you must understand. The promised healing, though, may not come until the revealing of the Son of God at His second advent. Some of you may be called to carry a particular trouble, temptation, or testing your whole life. That doesn't mean that you don't pray from deliverance. As Paul prayed, I prayed three times that the Lord would take this away. But he said, what? No, my grace is sufficient. For you. So I would challenge you. Some of you is yes, Lord, take this away from me. But many, many times your prayer may become, Lord, help me to endure this suffering. Help me to endure this testing. For it may be yours for life. It may be just for a time. But God has called us to a life of suffering. Until Christ comes, Scripture commands us to rejoice in the mercies of God. The prophet Jeremiah, who was no stranger to suffering, writes in Lamentations. Listen to this. He writes, remember my afflictions and my wanderings. At this time, he, he too is, is pushed out. And he, is, he is neglected uh, by his people. Uh, Israel is about to be divided. He says, the wormwood, uh, remember my affliction. He says, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But look at verse 21 says this, but at this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Can you grab onto this? In this rejoice. 
that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is God's faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, so is my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Seek him this morning. Find your hope, your joy in him. For he will give you the strength even in suffering. Even when suffering is not relented, even when suffering is not taken away, his mercies are new. He will give you the strength that you need each day to face the suffering you're going through. So not only are we to rejoice, we're commanded, but in verse 7 he gives us the why, the principle, why we must rejoice in suffering. And number two, we rejoice in troubles because it strengthens our faith. We are to rejoice in troubles because it strengthens our faith. So that, look at verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, that's more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, Peter agrees with James who wrote about joy and suffering. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But as we go back into verse 7 here of 1 Peter, Peter tells us why you and us, you and I must suffer. He not only gives the command, the precept, but he also lays out in the principle of the why. God does not cause you to suffer in vain or just to see what you're going to do. Trials, troubles, temptations, testings, these sufferings are the crucible of faith. God uses trials, or tra- uh, uh, trials. I have trails in my notes, so uh, either way, God uses trials to authenticate our faith, to prove it's genuine. Not that he cannot tell whether our faith is true or genuine, but for you and I own sake. For here's what I share with you. Because I believe there can be many, some even today, I don't believe many, but there can be even some here today that profess Christ. You said the prayer at VBS or in junior highs or in junior church or something like that or, or your mother told you that you were a Christian, but you may not be. You haven't truly repented of your dead works and turned and trust Christ. This is why he says, examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. The sufferings to authenticate our faith is not for God, but for you and I. And for the body of Christ as we encourage and lift and build each other up. I'll give you an example. How many of you, well, I won't ask the question, everyone's heard of fool's gold. Back in 1849, as people came from the east to California, there was a, the gold rush, right? And, and many people find all sorts of gold, but then mixed with that was fool's gold. And there are many who would grab a, a whole bag of it and say, oh, I'm rich, and go and find out that they were actually, you know, still penniless. There's four ways to distinguish fool's gold from real gold. The first one is actually the shine. When you're viewing fool's gold with the natural eye, it will glisten but not shine. The edges will look sharp and it may separate in layers. It may be shiny and pretty, but gold shines at any angle, not just when the light 
is right. The same way I think there's many times that people that profess Christ shine brightly but yet aren't truly reflecting the glory of God. There's the hardness. Real gold is soft and malleable. Gold flattens when you apply pressure, whereas fool's gold is brittle and breaks apart and shatters easily when hit. There's the residue. Gold will leave a pure yellow residue, while fool's gold will leave a greenish black powdery residue. And then there's the edges. Fool's gold has sharp edges, while gold has rounder edges. The shape of fool's gold is a lot more angular. However, gold, though, you and I understand, is precious. That's what Scripture says. Though gold, though it is precious, is temporary. It, too, is refined and proved by fire to see its purity, to see its strength, and to see how perfect it is. You see, God brings suffering to test the genuineness of the believer, to purify and reward us when Christ returns. Paul warns the church of Corinth that you and I must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that we may each receive what is due for what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians, if you would, with me in chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This passage is mainly about those who build into the church, the body of Christ, yet it paints the same word picture of refining by fire and that day when Christ returns. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting with verse 10, according to the grace of God, Paul writes, that God has given me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. And let each one take care of how he built upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than which is laid, which is Christ. Now, if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, look at verse 13, each one's work will be made manifest, will be made known. For the day, speaking of the day of Christ, will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work it has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved only through fire. So we see he's speaking of the believer. And obviously gold and fine silver and fine precious jewels, as they go through a fire, they melt and then you're able to form it and fashion it into whatever you want. But if your life is filled with wood, hay, and stumble, you wind up through fire, you wind up with ashes on the other end. And so what is your life right now? Is it marked as the testings and sufferings come? Is it marked by joy, the fruit of the Spirit? Or is it marked with grumbling, complaining? Theologian Thomas Schreiner notes that those who truly believe will persist in the faith, continuing to trust in God when difficulties occur. Let me give you an example. Well, you know, we won't have time to that. But give you an example of the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know the story. I think most of us do. It's Nebuchadnezzar, the king of, of Persia, builds this great big uh, statue and says, when the music plays, everyone is to bow down before it. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three Hebrew children who were brought from Israel, refused to do so. And his fury, Nebuchadnezzar, throws them into the fiery furnace and waits for them to be burned up. But yet, as we know the story, that doesn't happen as they stoke the fire so high that even those who threw them in the fire wind up perishing, we see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3 wind up unharmed. 
And even in the event, as Nebuchadnezzar looks through the window of that furnace, says, look, there is now a, a fourth man. He looks like the Son of Man. Coming out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not singed one bit. There is no smell of smoke. The fire hasn't touched them. They, too, were refined by fire. As exiles living in a world that was hostile to their faith, they were caused to suffer. They're testing. They, fail, or they, they, they were successful, and they praised God for it. And in it, we saw that Nebuchadnezzar himself praised God for, or for, I'm losing my words at this moment, but for protecting them. Schreiner points out that life as aliens is anything but easy. And let me tell you, this world is not easy for the Christian. And yet, by God's grace, the lives of believers are to be filled with joy, not glooming, moaning. In the book of Acts, we read of Paul and Silas who are sent out to share the gospel only to find themselves in prison. Now, how's that for it? Lord, we're following you. We're doing what you called us to do. They're finding lots of success. People are coming to know the Lord, but all of a sudden they find themselves in bondage. They find themselves wrapped up together with chains. They could have been grumbling and complaining to God about their condition. Yet Luke records that they were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Remember that. As you and I go through life, the way that we respond to testings and sufferings, people are watching. Paul commands the church of Philippi to do all things without grumbling or complaining, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You and I must remember that. You and I are being watched, we're being listened to, we're being uh, evaluated by others when we profess Christ. He says, holding fast to the word of life, so in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. God has called us to suffer and rejoice in suffering because it strengthens our faith. That's the why we rejoice in suffering. Others will see Others will hear, and that will bring others to praise God. Now, number three, let's get to the person. We see the command, we see the why, the principle, but what does this tell us about God? Number three, God promises to reward those who are faithful to his commands. God promises to reward those who rejoice in the midst of suffering. Look at verse eight. Though you have not seen him, Peter writes, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining, in verse 9, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. These believers that, Paul, that Peter is writing to most likely had never seen Christ in the flesh. They are coming to Christ and believing in him based on what Peter and other apostles have shared. They had never set their eyes on Christ. They did not see him crucified. They did not see the miracles, but yet they believed him. They accepted the testimony. Though never seeing Christ, they loved him. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 20. For this is important as we look, recognize in John's gospel, we read of the disciple Thomas who doubted that Jesus had risen from the dead. You may recall as Jesus comes and presents himself before the disciples that Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them. 
And so when the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, he said, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark, of the uh, mark of the nails, I'm sorry, and place my hands in the side, I will never believe. So go in verse John, or John, excuse me, chapter 20, look at verse 26. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and this time Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And here we come into 27, this interaction. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. Believe. Verse 28, Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. But look at verse 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Well, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That is you and I. For I would expect that neither you or I have ever seen the crucified Christ in person. We did not get to be personal eyewitnesses of his miracles, but yet we believe. The writer of Hebrew tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Peter is commending them for their faith in which they have not seen. That is what faith is. Paul tells us that we walk by faith and not by sight. So the question is, why then do you and I struggle with joy and suffering? I believe mainly it's in our suffering, our focus is turned inward rather than outward. When, we, when there's pain, we, we begin to look more inward and we start to look at ourselves and ask why and we, we have that, that pity party. When trials come, we tend to either retreat inward or to attack others outside. The problem is the object of our joy. Peter is describing a joy that's not based on circumstances, but it's based on a relationship with God, a God that we have not seen. This command to rejoice leads us to the person of God. He is the source of all joy. And when we believe in him, when we trust in him, he says that I will reward the faithful. David said it well in Psalm 1611, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. All at, your, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fortunately, you and I, our pleasures forevermore is in a person, a boy, a girl, a man, a woman. It's in maybe the pleasures of the world, something we can smoke, something we can drink something we can watch, something that just entertains us and dulls us. It can be in something that, that's in a person, as in a grandchild, a family. It can be in retirement or career. And the thing is, is when we do that, we do not see the person of God. Suffering is meant to draw us back, not inside or not to a particular person or circumstance, but it's meant to point us back to God. When Christ is the object of our faith, he, is a, he, he helps us to endure suffering. We are called to rejoice now for what we receive in the future. Later in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter will write, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Why do we rejoice? Because it strengthens our faith. And why should we do that? Because it points us to a creator who is faithful, 
who does not waste our hurt, who does not cause suffering in others just to make his life fun and to watch us run around, but to test us and encourage us to follow him. In that way, we rejoice in the hope that we are his children. The outcome of our faith, the outcome of rejoicing in suffering is our inheritance. Thomas Schreider writes that believers should praise God for the certainty of future hope. He goes to write that believers are joyful because suffering is the pathway to a godliness that passes the test in the last days. Because suffering results in future salvation. Suffering is valuable for the benefits it brings, not for the pain and suffering that you're going through. That is real, but it does bring benefits. And I say this not to diminish your pain, because some of you, it is very real. It's bringing you to desperation and despair. It disillusions you, maybe even causes you to doubt the very goodness of God. But when we focus on the outcome of our suffering, not the suffering itself, but on the outcome of the suffering, this leads to joy that Peter describes is inexpressible. No bit of poetry or music can fully express the joy that we will have when Christ says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom. If we look to the world, our suffering is in vain. If you and I, though, look to God during our suffering, it is validated. Jesus is an example of this as we come to a close. As we read in Hebrews 12, Jesus, though tempted in carrying our trespasses, suffered on the cross. He faced it with joy. For he says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So when God commands this, this is not that Jesus did not have to go through it. He's our brother. He's gone through all the things, but yet faced it with joy. Turn your eyes to the monitor, and if you would, here's the conclusion. This is the truth you need to understand. Suffering is a purifying fire that deepens our faith in God. So let me ask you, through your trials, your temptations, your testings, your troubles and the trespasses, is your faith being strengthened. If not, it's because the object of your joy, the object of your joy is not God. It's something else. Look at Psalms 40 here on the, on the monitor as well. Paul, the one who says, God, why haven't you answered me? He says this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry block, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secured. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Amen? This is why we can say that suffering offers believers a chance to show others the generous love of God. If you're going through suffering with grumbling and complaining, all you tell them is God is an awful God. He keeps hurting me for no reason. But with joy, we point to something that they cannot understand. Mark Hamby writes this. He says, this reminds me of what Paul taught in Romans 8, that the sufferings of this present time are not to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. It will be worth more than you and I can imagine. 
if we can learn to patiently endure, God will fulfill his part of the agreement, but we must fulfill ours. And once again, one last verse as we close. Hebrews chapter 6 here on the screen. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Please, Christian, have hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Rejoice in this, the mercies of God, that your suffering's not in vain, but it seeks to strengthen and encourage you that you may be rewarded by a faithful God who loves and desires a relationship with you. With every head bowed and every eye closed as the worship team comes, this is time where I ask you to pause, to consider, to pray and respond to the Holy Spirit's work. And so I would like to address three sections of people this morning. To believers, if you're here this morning, you've repented of dead works and you've turned to Christ. If you called on the name of the Lord Christ, you profess, you submit to his lordship, then I ask you to share in the sufferings of, of God, the sufferings as a good soldier of Christ. Meditate on God's command and fix your eyes on God. Recognize the importance of trusting in God and suffering. If you're undergoing a trial that's a temptation, you should resist it. If you're undergoing a trial that's a trespass, then you need to release it through forgiveness. If you're undergoing a trouble that's your own fault, you should repent of it, confess of it. And if it's a trial from God, you need to relax in it and trust God for his deliverance. To those of you who know Christ, but you're struggling, then cry out the Psalm of David, where he says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I come into deep waters and my flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim waiting for my God. Pray also, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of Christ. Do not quench the spirit. And to you who may be here and you do not know Christ, you have not submitted to Christ, you do not believe, I'm sad to say that you are left with no hope of your own during suffering. Your trials serve either to show God's wrath and to make known his power. You must understand that as sinners, as rebellious and disobedient children, that God has endured you with much patience as vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Or your suffering and trials serve to direct your hearts to him. I ask you this morning, what should it be? I pray today that you may call on him and taste and see that the Lord is good. And blessed is the man and woman who takes refuge in him. Do not hesitate. What stops you from calling on him this morning? Father, I pray you take this message and that you would use it this week that we may not forget it. But Lord, that you would direct our hearts to this passage of scripture and that we would truly examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Is our life marked by true joy found in Christ? Is our suffering and trials strengthening our faith or is it defeating us? We pray that you would keep in mind that you are a faithful, loving God 
Not bringing suffering just to punish us, to curse us, or to make our life miserable. But that you are a faithful, loving God, desiring to bring us to you. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. With every head bowed and every eye closed just for a moment, I'd ask you to consider these things. If you're here and you would like prayer, you'd like to have know more about the suffering, you'd like to, to know how you may come to know Christ or to fight this battle of sin, then Dustin will be here up here at the end of the service. Come to him and he can take you to another room if you'd like. We can pray and we encourage you. I ask Randy if you're able to also to be up here and we'd like to encourage you how you can find joy and apply these things to your life. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.